As you're being seated, if you would take out your copies of God's Word as we start in Genesis chapter 1. If you'd like to follow along in the Pew Bible, that's page number 1. In fact, I would imagine it's page number 1 no matter what Bible you're using. All be in sync, finally. All right. Well, this before us is an extremely familiar passage of Scripture. And because of that, this is something to where we need to pay even more attention to it. Because we can often, in our readings of these things, can pass over details that we need to notice and things that we need to see. So please, listen carefully, because this is God's first word to us. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 1 and starting in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there, were, and there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, that it, let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is in their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its own kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser night, light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. 
And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on our text today. Oh God, we do thank you for this introduction to everything in this book of Genesis and here this introduction to the introduction of everything, creation of the world. But I pray that we would hear and understand. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It is said in one particular year the Green Bay Packers were playing a particularly disappointing first half in their football game. And while the coach, who was known as Vince Lombardi, could have lectured them on how to execute the plays he had taught them and go about all the fine technicals that they were missing, instead he picked up a ball, looked at the team, and said, Gentlemen, this is a football. To which one of the players said, Slow down, coach. What he was doing was reminding his players of the fundamentals of the game, bringing people back to the most basic elements of what they were supposed to be doing. And in here, in Genesis 1, we are being reminded of the basics, the fundamentals. And for those of us, like perhaps those NFL players who have been playing football for most of their lives, could have looked at that and thought, well, coach, I already know that. And we who are Christians could say, well, we already know that God created the world. But we need to be reminded of this. As we said earlier in our last week, when we were taking a look at Genesis as a whole, we were reminded that Genesis is the introduction to everything, not just the Bible, but to our lives. And here at this beginning point, God is reminding us of the most fundamental thing, that he 
has created the world. When you look through the Bible and read Genesis really closely, you'll see how many times God is emphasizing certain things. In Hebrew, the number seven is the word for completeness. This is something that we see all throughout this passage. When they want to emphasize something, they'll say it three times. We'll see this when it was creating man. They said that he created him in God's image. He created him in God's image. He created man in God's image. And then does the, at the very end, we were looking at verse 3 of chapter 2. It says, all the work that he had done, that he had done, that he had done. God sees fit to remind us of this and to emphasize this. And as we'll see at the very end, he's doing so because he wants us to know, one, that God controls all things and that he has made all things, owns all things, including us. And that's what we're going to see when we are looking in this passage. We're going to see our three points today. See, Aaron, I'm growing from two to three points. In our Genesis 1 we see, number one, God alone created the universe. In verse two, we'll see that God alone commands the universe. And in point number three, that God alone blesses the universe. So that's what we're going to see as we jump in here in verse one. You'll notice in Genesis one, it doesn't begin the way that we would probably begin. We want to start before the beginning. Well, where did God come from? Who is this person? Why are we suddenly talking about him? Genesis skips all of those questions and goes straight to the point in that God has made all things. It's not really important for you to know where he came from because as we'll find out as we go through the rest of scripture, God will introduce himself and we'll see he has always existed. He's outside of time. Not something we need to grasp and wrangle through right now as he just says, God created the place. That might be the controversial statement for us today, but back then, that, the, what the real radical point was that it was God alone creating all these things. As I, in my studies, I had a lot of commentators that would show the various creation myths that existed at the time, the stories from Babylonian societies and other things for their explanations for how the world came to be. And often they are very violent stories of God's battling each other to create those things. For example, when it says that God has had put up the expanse, meaning creating the atmosphere between the, the waters of the ocean and the waters in the clouds separating the sky, the way that this was done in, I believe it was the Babylonian myth, was one God tore another God in half, and that's what made the oceans, and then that's what made the clouds. Here we don't see the sort of cosmic battle because there's no one else to oppose him. It's God alone who is making this world. And we must remember who this is originally written to. As we saw in our last several weeks when we were talking about context, one of the things that we needed to keep in mind was who was this originally written to? And what this was originally written to was anywhere from one to two million recently freed slaves from Egypt who had been enslaved for the last four centuries by people who worshipped a bunch of different gods. It would probably be driven into your mind over four centuries that these people were more powerful than you and that it was probably because of the gods that they worshipped. Now, as we'll see much, much later on when we eventually get to Exodus... We see God putting out the plagues in Egypt and showing he's more powerful than all those other gods. They worship the Nile. Well, at God's command, the Nile's now all blood. 
They worship the sun at God's command. It's totally dark. So he rules over all these things. And he's meant to show us all these things that Egypt worshipped are the things that God, in fact, created. And we'll see, because this probably would have been read to them, either at the foot of Mount Sinai or right before they're heading into the promised land, they're being reminded, as one commentator put out, that the God of, who created the cosmos is the one who's creating a covenant with them. And this is what we have to keep in mind. This is the same for us. The God that we worship is the God who created all these things. Not a local tribal deity of Silicaga, who once you go outside of these borders, he can no longer help you. But this is the God who has formed the sun. The God who has provided every green thing that you see on this planet. It all comes from his word. And that any other rival belief, as one of my old seminary professors said, is no threat to us. And it may, we may think, well, the main challenge that we see from Genesis is this, from the scientific community. But I think we're seeing in recent trends there is some interesting rises in old pagan cultures again. In the early part of the 2000s, about 160,000 people practiced some form of earth worship or paganism. That has grown to about 1.2 million today. It's even made a big splash on social media now as people gather together for these old things. So the, the old context is new again <laughs> as we look at Genesis. Now, as we're going to go into the rest of this passage, I would be remiss if I didn't at least as an aside address how we can reconcile Genesis and science together. And I think there are more important things that we can look at, but I think we'll just mention these things briefly. We are remembering in Genesis that it's God who has created the place. At least back then, and these other things, while we can kind of raise our eyebrows at the idea of a god tearing another god in half and creating a world together, that would honestly make more sense than to say that the earth exploded itself into existence of what we see today with no help at all. Honestly, that's a little harder to believe for me. But what was very clear, God is the one who has created this place. And as we'll see, he's created it in six days. I come from the perspective that he's talking about six 24-hour days. The reason I think that very briefly, and this is from one of my professors who's kind of condensed it for us, we'll see as we go along, this was the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day. Anytime you see the word day, which is in Hebrew, yom, coupled with a number, it always means 24 hours. First day, second day, 24-hour period. Second thing is that the Ten Commandments, when it tells us to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, because in six days God created the place, so in six days you shall work. It's, it seems to assume a 24-hour period because it's going to say, just like God created all things in six days, you have six days to do your work. It seems to tie those two things together. We also see, at least from the fourth day on, when God makes the sun and the moon, it's to mark days, seasons, and calendars. So even if you wanted to make the argument that day meant an age, at least from day four, now the calendar is in effect. So I would think that would be the same for the remaining days. Uh, and finally, if we're going to say, well, a day is an age, well, then what about the night? Where you're talking about two different ages, two different long periods of time, I don't think so. Now, all that to be said, there are a variety of opinions on those things. And while we can get into the, the nuances of Hebrew verb structure, I think the important thing that we're keeping in mind is God is the one who has made all things. 
And I think it is better when we come to the text instead of saying it's just like, well, I don't see how you could just form all of this in a day. If we're coming at it from from that perspective, we've already got the wrong one. We're coming to the word of God to submit to what it says. I remember uh, Spurgeon talked about a woman in his congregation who was asked, well, how can you believe that the story of Jonah, that a whale swallowed Jonah? And the woman looked at this person who was challenging her faith, as Spurgeon relates this story, and she says, if the Bible told me that it was Jonah who swallowed the whale, I would believe it. (laughs) Because it's God's word to me. And I think that's the perspective that we bring here. Yes, we want to read this thing carefully. Yes, we, we can see that this has been written in a very poetic way. But that doesn't mean that what is being illustrated is not true or some sort of embellishment. I think, as I've laid out here, I think that this is exactly what God intended us to see. So, with all of that in mind, setting that aside, let's get into it. Here when we see the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. A summary statement for the whole rest of the chapter. He's giving us the TLDR at the very beginning, and now he's getting us into the details here in verse 2. It says, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Commentaries have been frustratingly silent as to where these waters came from. But we know from from John chapter 1, it says that Jesus created all things, and there was nothing nothing that exists that Jesus didn't make. So wherever these waters came from, this is something that God made. I liked one commentator who thought about it in this way. It's like a, a potter who takes a lump of clay and slaps it onto the wheel and then begins to form it. And in the same way here, we've got this chaos and things that he's picked up, slapped down, and now God is beginning to form with it. But he's still creating, as what we see from here in verse 3, is still creating of nothing. God isn't dealing with eternal matter. He's saying something, and then it exists. And here he begins in verse 3, let there be light, and there was light. You'll notice that this light is created a good three days before anything else is created to emit that light. So God didn't create the sun first, and that's what's providing the light, like a workman needs to screw in a light bulb in order to be able to see. God is creating the light from himself and is making this out of nothing. And then he goes on, we have the, the day, the night, we have the first day. And then he creates a separation from the, um, from the earth and the sky, he creates the atmosphere. This shows that he is involved in every single realm. There is no place that you can take a rocket high enough and get out of God's jurisdiction because he's made all of that. And there's no place that you can go low enough deep into the oceans or deep into the land that God has not created himself. And then finally, he creates earth and sea, separates them all out and creates this place. Now, commentators had, put, had noticed something interesting when we look at the beginning of that the world was without form and void, chaotic and empty. Here in these first three days of creation that we've just seen, God creates the space. He brings order to the chaos Now, instead of land and sea mixed together, there are clear dividing lines now. 
mixture of earth and sky, now those things are divided now. A mixture of light and dark, those are now divided now. There is order and structure to the world and solves this first problem that there was chaos. And now, in the next three days of creation, we're going to fill it. We're going to deal with the emptiness that is still present as he brings about everything else. Provides for food that he'll, that he'll make for humans and for creatures here in these next few verses in 11 and following. He creates all the trees and the greenery that people and animals will be able to eat. And finally here in verse 14, now we get the sun and the moon. He creates these lights long after he has created light and darkness. And this is actually from another commentator. His name is Kasuda. We'll be hearing from him a lot. He was, he's actually a, a Jewish scholar as he looks at these things. His grasp of Hebrew is phenomenal. He'll be with us just until chapter 12. He died before he could finish the rest of the book. But he's useful here in how he points out with these lights being put here to separate and to mark the day and the night. So this is how we're able to have the first through third days without the sun and the moon. The sun and the moon are just telling us these are the starting points for this. Day and light still exist even when we can't see the sun. And in the same way they existed when we didn't have the sun. It's just now marking these things here. Then he goes on and he fills the rest of creation in the sky with the moon and the stars which is just kind of a thrown in as an aside, which is interesting. It talks about the moon and the sun, and it's like, oh yeah, all those billions of stars, yeah, he made that too. Almost sounds like an afterthought of God's creation. And then we move on, and we get some, some interesting points here in 20 and 21, where he begins to create all of these living creatures, the birds to fill the, the heavens that he's made. And then in verse 21, that God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds. I like the way the, the King James Version renders this as the great sea monsters that he's made. What this would be a reference to is in ancient lore, there was the idea there were these great sea monsters that, would, that, that had originally rebelled against God. And that he had to battle them to put them in place and get them to where they were. And here, Genesis corrects this misunderstanding and saying, no, these giant sea monsters that everyone was afraid of, that they thought that they could rebel against him, no, he made those. Those are all just still there. What's also interesting is the Hebrew word for swarms is usually used of tiny creatures. And this word of tiny creatures is applied both to the sea monsters and to the fish because they're all equally small to him. It's only when we get later on that the Genesis pulls out the difference between those two, that he's made the great sea creatures and the little tiny fish. But they're all equally small to him, even if they're big to us. And then here as we come down to the latter parts here in verse 22, we get God's first blessing, God's first declaration of favor. And he gives this, interestingly, just to the fish. He tells the birds to multiply. We see the commands here as we get into the second point that God alone commands the universe. We've got all these creatures, and now he tells them to go forth and multiply and continue this work of filling what was empty. But he has this special blessing for the fish that they would multiply, which later on actually becomes a Hebrew proverb. 
that when people would wish a blessing upon their family, they would say in the original Hebrew, may you multiply like the fish, which we'll actually see in, um, that's at the very end of Genesis, in Genesis 48, 18, when Jacob, then Israel, pronounces a blessing over his 12 sons, he tells them, may you multiply like the fish. So here we see that same thing here. And we'll see that same blessing word come up here in just a moment. So we see he has made this universe, and now he commands it to go forth and to multiply. But then we get to verse 26. And here the narrative slows down tremendously. Always be paying attention to when the narrative suddenly slows down. You'll see as you go through Genesis, sometimes there will be years and decades that are covered in just a couple of verses. And then all of a sudden, Genesis will slow to a crawl as we begin to investigate certain details. And that's usually the point where they're going to emphasize something. Usually in some sort of a movie, if you want to emphasize something, you cut off the music. That kind of wakes us up as we're going to focus in. It's like, oh dear, you know, the murderer's in the closet. The music's cut off. We're going to really pay attention now. And here in Genesis, whenever we slow down, that's the music cutting off. Pay attention. What we're about to see is really important. We're getting to the climax of creation here in verse 26. As God says, let us make man in our image. We've never heard God talk about what he's going to do first. When it was just let there be light, there's light. We didn't hear, you know what? We should make some light around here. What do you guys think about that? God doesn't say anything about like that in the earlier parts. He just doesn't. But here we're getting to see the behind the scenes of God's thinking to make man. Now there has been barrels of ink spilled as to what does let us make mean. Who is God talking to? There's nobody else around. Man hasn't been made yet. People have made a lot about certain verbs and noun forms in here. Like, for example, God all the way through. Every time you see God mentioned, the word there in Genesis 1, it's a plural noun. But yet it takes a singular verb. So, we're, so this is not a multiple gods that are doing these things. It is one God who is making something. So it would seem odd that Moses, who is trying very hard to tell you there is only one God, he is the only one who's creating these things, it seems like an odd slip for them, him to say, let us make. And this plural. There are a number of ways we can look at that. Some would say, well, what is being mentioned here is this some sort of royal we, that God is showing through this plurality that he is all deity. It's a marker of a marker of intensiveness. Without going through all of the various things, I think this is just an early hint of the Trinity. We're going to see that developed later on in the scriptures, the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is one God in three persons. I know, that's mind-blowing. It's supposed to be. It's God. But I think this is our first early hint that that's what we're looking at. We've already seen the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. God saying things are to be made. And as we'll see in John chapter 1, when it says that before the beginning, the Word was with God. And it was the Word that made all things, obviously pointing to Jesus, as we'll see as it was revealed later on in John. So I think we have a Trinity here. And as we'll explore as we go along, the Trinity is actually a really important concept here. 
The fact that there is a trinity, that there is fellowship within the Godhead, shows God doesn't make this because he was lonely. He was perfectly happy as a trinity, perfectly fulfilled with a place for love to reciprocate within the Father, Son, and Spirit. So we'll explore more of those details, and those are very, very exciting. I can't wait to get to chapter 2. But for now, we're just going to say, hey, here's a place marker. I think he is, this is an intertrinitarian discussion about making man. So if you ever wanted to find out what's going on in God's discussions with himself amongst the persons of the Trinity, here we are. And he's going to create man. Then we get to make man in our image, and we have more barrels of ink that have been spilled. What does the image mean? We know in other places of the scripture it says that God is a spirit, which means God doesn't have a body. So if he's going to say, let us make man in our image, that doesn't mean that we look like God. Like God has ears and a jawline and arms and fingers. He doesn't have those things. So what does it mean to be made in his image? There have been a number of different explanations for that. Some, would, some commentators go with the idea that we reflect his spiritual nature in having a soul. And that we have a sense of justice or morality that the other animals don't have. As my mom always had told me in explaining this verse to me, the lion doesn't feel guilty for biting you. He just wants lunch. Whereas we feel guilty when we hurt each other because there's something of the image of God in there. Some have even said, well, we are meant as in physical beings. We have ears to demonstrate God hears. We have eyes because we're demonstrating that God sees. That even the physical parts of our body say something about who God is and what he does. I think all of those things could be a part of that. In the end, this is something special that God has given to mankind and only mankind. And this, hear me now, is what makes us special. Not because we stand up on two legs. Not because we can create things that make us stronger than all the rest of the world. What makes us special is the fact that we have the image of God. And that's nothing that, is, that we have earned, deserved, or made ourselves. This is a gift from God that we all have. This is something worth keeping in mind when we're irritated at one another, especially other people in traffic. Traffic, the people that are sitting in it, are in the image of God, even if they don't use their blinker. And they thus deserve our respect. This doesn't mean that there can't be justice that's given for wrongdoing, but it does mean that we have respect for one another. This is why in Christianity we care so much about life, not just in the womb, but in the elderly. Society has found very little use for the beginning and the end of human life because it doesn't make money. But here, as we see in Genesis, you are not defined. Your value is not measured by how much you produce, by what you do. It's whose image you're made in. And that's what this is emphasizing to us. And notice how it just pounds this point over and over again in verse 27. Again, three times to make emphasis. That's, this is the Hebrew bolded, italicized, and underlined font. It's repeating things. And here in 27, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. 
And lest we think that only applies to 50% of the world and half the genders, it goes on and says, male and female, he created them in his image. Both male and female are equally valuable before God. Not because of what one can do and the other can't, or what both of them can do. Both are made in the image of God. And because of that, deserve our respect. This is what he does. And then finally, here in verse 28, again, God blesses them. That's important. We'll explore that again next time. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So far, so good. This is what has been told to the birds, the fish, and everybody else. But we get something special for humanity. Go and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth is given rulership over the rest of the planet. Now, usually what will then happen is humanity will make one of, one of two errors, having just heard this. We'll either go in the one direction and say, okay, well, we're going to rule over creation. That means we'll let creation rule over us. We will make sure that all of these things are taken care of at the expense of human life, which tends to be the mistake that a lot of people are making in our society. But we can also go the other way and saying, ah, we're the special ones. That means the rest of the creation doesn't matter. We can do whatever we want because we're in charge here. And that never seems to be how God wants us to use power. It always wants to be a power with love. A power that does not seek to dominate, but a power that seeks to elevate. Always keeping in mind it's the image of God. That must be preserved at all costs. But then he gives us a creation to care for. Remember who made it. It's still God's. He's put us over it to manage it. We're the district managers of this one small part of the universe. But it's still his. We're stewards of it and need to be careful with it. So this is a balance of the two. We don't worship this creation. This isn't more important than human life. But nor do we just say, well, we can trash it and do whatever we want with it. It's a both and. It's still God's, and he's given it to us to care for. And this is how we find out God has made everything. Day six, done. Then we move on to day seven, and there's a summary portion. The chapters, markings in your Bible are not original and not inspired. I think the story continues as we go along all the way to verse three. That says, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work and all that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. The word rested has unfortunate context or, um, and an unfortunate connotation in our own day. As to say, well, rest means you're tired. God's been exerting himself all week, creating all of these things. And God's just slap out exhausted and he needs to take a nap. That's not what we see here in verse 7. Rest, as again our Hebrew friend Kasudo points out, this rest is a consequence of stopping work. He's finished his work, and that's what it's really meant to emphasize. God doesn't need to take a load off, put his feet up in his armchair. He is stopping from his creation. But if he stopped, why is he doing that if he doesn't need to rest? Well, what he's providing for, as Mr. Kasudo continues to point out, is he is providing a model for us. 
we as his creatures made in his image would hopefully want to imitate God as much as possible. And we might think, okay, well then that means God wants us to be working constantly, always at work, never taking a break, rise and grind people. But that's not what God does. Instead, he stops because he wants us to stop. That rest and ceasing from our labor is just as important as working. Just as important as getting after it is also stopping. And recognizing that as we stop, my wife is smiling at me as I say all these things. I know, I need to hear it too. He is stopping from his work because he wants us to stop. Because we need it. We need the rest. So he has condescended himself so this way his children can be like him. Like a dad who will get down on the floor and pretend to be pinned down by a two-year-old. He's condescending for his children. And God does the same for us. So it is worthwhile as we think about how we structure our weeks. But when we're working, we're working hard. But we stop too. Because we're remembering we didn't build this place. God did. We're not upholding this place. God does. We can afford to take a break and take rest and slumber and sleep because God doesn't slumber or sleep. He's always at work. He's always looking after us. But yet even at the beginning, he stops so that we would. So that's the creation of the world. That's how we all got started. From the perspective of the only person who was there to tell us about it, and it was God. So what does this all mean? What's our takeaway from from Genesis 1? Well, it tells us that God has created all things, and as such, owns all things. We didn't get to see this, we didn't have time to look at it, but you'll notice when God made all things, he named those things, which was an ancient way of showing you had control over that. You don't name your neighbor's dog, you name your dog because you own it. And it's the same thing here in creation. God has named all of these things because he is in charge of those things. So you are worshiping the God who has made everything, who controls everything, including you. But a God who rests on the seventh day, makes it holy, and separates it out for us, for us to rest. Now you may be thinking, well, if we're supposed to rest on the seventh day... That was yesterday. Why are we gathering for worship and say we're supposed to rest today, here on Sunday? What changed? I'll tell you what changed. 2,000 years ago, on a Sunday, there was a man named Jesus, who was also God, who rose from the dead on this day. Because while God has made all things good, we then made all things bad. We brought sin into this world and doing all the things that God tells us not to do. Those things that would have promoted life, we try to promote death. Those things that promote honesty, we make dishonesty. And because of all of this sin, the penalty for it is death. And then God himself took that punishment. We'll see much later on in the New Testament. God took that punishment for us. Jesus died on the cross, went into the grave, but didn't stay dead and rose again. What that provided for us was the path to heaven. It made it possible to be with God and to enter into an eternal rest and stopping from all work. That's what we have here today. 
So as you go home today and think about how God has made all things, I pray that you would remember he has redeemed all things, including you. And if you'd like to know how that can be made possible in your life, how you can trust in God and turn from your sins, nothing would thrill me more than to talk about that with you afterwards. But for now, remember, the God that you worship is the God who created. The God who created will one day redeem. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you so much for this time that we've gotten to spend together. Lord, I pray that you would bless this time, bless this week as we go forward. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.